Lord, thanks for a gorgeous morning that we can meet together around the person of your son, his name, his person. We count on your promise to meet with us. Lord, we ask that your spirit would move to honor you, to help us to lift up and praise your name, to instruct us in the things you want us to know, to conform us to the image of Christ. Lord, we know that we can accomplish nothing of spiritual value through our own efforts. It's only by your power that your work is done. And we would just submit ourselves to your word and to your spirit this morning as we look in your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in Daniel 5. We're finishing out chapter 5 this week. And as an introduction, you remember last week, verses 1 through 12... We changed gears, we left Nebuchadnezzar behind, and we went to his son or grandson, Belshazzar. And Belshazzar is eating, drinking, and making merry. Remember, he's got a party going. And even though Babylon is surrounded by the army of the Medes and the Persians, this very night, proud Belshazzar is using the vessels from the temple in Jerusalem to praise his little gods of Babylon. And as the reverie is taking place and everyone's having a good time, it says a hand comes out and writes on the wall. And the party is over and everyone is wondering, what does this mean? And so they have called for the wise men of Babylon and they cannot read or at least they cannot interpret the writing on the wall. And so the queen mother, either Belshazzar's mom or grandmother, has come in and suggested that they call one of Nebuchadnezzar's prize counselors, Daniel, one of the Jewish exiles in, and that certainly he will be able to read the writing and tell its meaning. And so that's where we pick up today at verse 13 in Daniel 5. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Now I have heard about you that a spirit of the gods is in you, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not declare the interpretation of the message. I personally have heard about you that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. You remember this was God's gift to him we read about in chapter 1. Now, if you are able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple, a color of royalty, and wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. And remember we said that Belshazzar himself was probably the second ruler under his father, Nabonidus, the great or high king. So just as in chapters 2 and 4, God has revealed something to the Babylonian monarch that they can't understand a dream in the past. They've called in their wise men, and the wise men can't understand, can't reveal its interpretation. And that brings up this conflict so that God's man Daniel is brought in to speak for God and tell what this thing means. Same things happened here. So Daniel is brought in at verse 17, and answered and said before the king, keep your gifts for yourself, or... Give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. Now, Daniel is is not being rude, and he's not being arrogant. He's not being rude when he says this. He knows that anything this king gives is short-lived indeed. 
because he knows what the writing means and he knows what the judgment is. Anything this king gives will not last through the night. That's one thing. The other thing I think is that Daniel genuinely wants to be able to tell the king what's going on. Remember, Daniel's an old man at this point in his life. He's seen it all. He's lived in the upper echelons, if you will, of society and political movements and power. And the rewards are not an issue for him. He's not concerned about a purple robe or a gold necklace. He does want the king, I think, genuinely to know what's going on and why. And so he will tell him. Verse 18 O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Now, it's interesting, instead of coming in, he's not reading the writing on the wall yet. He's giving a history lesson instead. And as he starts this brief history lesson, it's interesting. You remember we left Belshazzar and the party toasting the gods of Babylon, of metals and earth. And here, Daniel starts out by saying, king, the most high God. The most high God, not your little gods, the most high God. This could have been highly insulting at any other time, but, but King Belshazzar is willing to listen at this point. The most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Because of the grandeur he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed, and whomever he wished, he spared alive. Whomever he wished, he elevated, and whomever he wished, he humbled. And you can read about this in the uh, historic books, in Kings and Chronicles, about Nebuchadnezzar's killing uh, Zedekiah, Jehoiakim's sons, leaving him alive, elevating Daniel and his friends, and putting others to death. He was given that kind of authority and power. Verse 20, but when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud, that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven away from mankind, and his heart was made like that of beasts. His dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like a cow. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and he sets over it whomever he wishes. Now, this is familiar to us. This is Daniel chapter 4, isn't it? The story of God humbling Nebuchadnezzar. The question arises in my mind, why is this important? Why do we have this history lesson before Daniel finally gets to the point of the story? What is written on the wall, and what does it mean? And I think the point is, this sets everything up for the real message God has here and why the messages come at this time. Verse 22 and 23 are the key. Daniel's point before he reads the writing is, Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. That's one point. Second point, even though you knew all this. What was Nebuchadnezzar guilty of? Pride. And you knew it. And you knew what God did when he was raised up in pride. Verse 23, You have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. And they have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines have been drinking wine from them. You have praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand, but the God in whose hand are your life, breath, and your ways, 
you have not glorified. This is the point. You haven't humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. And let's take these issues one at a time. This first issue of pride. Daniel's just reminding him from this lesson from Nebuchadnezzar that when Nebuchadnezzar was raised up in pride, God humbled him. You not only have followed your father in his sin of pride, you've actually exceeded him. We could say that in a sense, Nebuchadnezzar's pride was somewhat in ignorance. He didn't have anyone before him. He just was raised up. And you remember he says, he looks at Babylon and says, look at what my might and my power have done. Belshazzar not only thinks highly of himself, but he actually takes the vessels from God's temple in Jerusalem and with them, these holy vessels dedicated to the Most High God, he uses them to toast or praise his little gods that Daniel says they can't see, they can't hear, they can't understand. His arrogance or his pride was even worse than his father's. And this whole thing of pride, you know, it's interesting in Daniel. This is the point. This seems to be one of the key points of the first six chapters. And you remember you're dealing with a book in which the people of God are subject to a foreign Gentile power. Like all powers on the earth, these tend to take the qualities of the God of this world that they generally live and serve under. And if you think about Satan as the God of this world, you know, what preeminently uh, is his quality? It's pride. It's pride, and pride he exalted himself against God himself. And so it's not unusual, or it's not surprising that the world he rules and the Gentile powers that follow him and his little gods are characterized by his quality of pride. And so when you read the history of the world, whether it's in Daniel and Babylon or, or uh, secular history in general, pride is this root sin that's dealt with over and over and over again. And it's this key characteristic of the world that we live in. You know, this is one of those sins that God says repeatedly, uh, he will oppose those who are proud. This says it in Proverbs repeatedly. It's spoken of in Peter and in James. God is opposed to the proud, but will give grace to the humble. God hates the, pride, the sin of pride. And so when we exalt ourselves in pride, it's, it's not a question of if. It's a given that God is opposed to us. And if you're a Christian who's going to heaven and you exalt yourself in pride, God, your Father, is still going to discipline you and chastise you for this sin of pride. Pride. He's opposed to it. He hates it. And, you know, if you think about it, when we read through chapter 4 before, we closed with a poem that talked about the insanity of pride. You know that when we think too high of ourselves, we've left the path of truth. Remember that to be humble isn't to think too lowly of ourselves. It's simply to have a sober, real estimation of who we are and probably more important, who God is. So it doesn't mean that we see ourselves as a worm per se. It's just that we recognize we're a creature. We're not the creator. We're one person in the world and the universe. We're not the center of the universe. You know, in pride, we leave rational thought. We leave sanity and we think things that aren't true. We fail to give God his proper place and we elevate ourselves to a place God's never meant for us to have. So he hates this, and the world is characterized by it because the world's God is Satan, who's characterized by pride. And so his kingdoms are characterized by this also. You know, in contrast to that, when the real king of the universe, the most high God, humbles himself and comes to earth, he leaves us a pattern that we're called to. It's the opposite of Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar. It's not pride, it's what? It's 
humility. In Philippians 2, let me read just a couple verses. Paul says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, vain conceit, thinking too highly of ourselves, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. You're not the center of the universe. It's not all important that all your wants, needs, desires are met. You take the opposite view that you're going to humble yourself to serve others. Why? Well, that's what Jesus did for us. Verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. Remember that the most high God humbled himself to the lowest estate to save us and then to leave us an example. Verse 7, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So God is judging Belshazzar because of this sin of pride. And for you and I, it is so unbecoming for a Christian to in any way revel in this sin of pride. We all in our carnal natures, we think we're the center of the universe. But as a Christian, God hopefully is is cluing us in little bits at a time. That's not quite the size of it. And the longer we walk with God, the more clearly we should understand that God calls us to elevate him, to see him as the one we need to honor and make the center of our lives, but that he calls us to serve others, to take the humble place that he took. The greatest among you, he says, will be the servant of all. And that should be our mentality. That should be our outlook. So Belshazzar is being judged for the sin of pride. The second point along this line, and I suppose one as important as the first, um, takes a little bit more development, but Belshazzar is being held accountable for a lesson God taught someone else. He's being held accountable. He is being held responsible, and he's being judged because he did not take to heart a lesson God taught someone else. This is important, and if you think about the implications, these are far-reaching. Daniel says, you did this. You exalted yourself in arrogant pride, even though you knew. Even though you knew what God did to your father for the same sin. And you remember we said, it appears, commentators don't necessarily all agree on this, but it appears that Nebuchadnezzar's converted, that he believes in the God of Israel, in the Most High God and is converted, sings his praises in the, in the former chapter. But that in contrast to God humbling him until he understood, he doesn't do that with Belshazzar. And part of the reason seems to be God says to Nebuchadnezzar, you're elevated in pride, I'm going to humble you until you understand. But to Belshazzar he says, you knew what God said to your dad, and you haven't taken it to heart. And I'm not giving you a second chance. And I'm not humbling you like a beast until you recognize this. I'm cutting you off in judgment. Belshazzar was held, if not to a higher standard, he was held to the knowledge that God revealed to his father. And think through this with me for a minute. What are you and I accountable for today? If Belshazzar was responsible and accountable for knowledge or truth or revelation God gave his father. What are you and I as Christians today accountable to God for? What are we responsible for? Listen to what Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul's just recite a little bit of the history lesson, just like Daniel does here. A little bit of history about Israel's history during the Exodus. And he's mentioned a few ways they've blown it. 
And in verse 6 he says, Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they craved. These things happened as examples for us. Verse 11, These things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. They're an example for us, and they were written for our instruction. Now, this is interesting. Paul, a Jewish Christian, is writing to a primarily Gentile church in Corinth. And he's telling them that the things that happened to the Jewish nation during the Exodus 1,500 years earlier were written for their instruction. So this this is mind-blowing a little bit to me. He's telling a church, a Gentile church in the first century, that they are responsible for what God taught the Jewish nation uh, 1,400 years earlier. They're responsible for it. They're accountable for it. It was written for their instruction. He says in verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. That's why he's recited these things. You're tempted with idolatry. You're tempted with uh, immorality. You're tempted with all these other things. Paul says this isn't new. Nothing that you're experiencing, none of these temptations you're thinking about, none of them are new. And you remember Corinth is a, it's a wild place. It would be like our Los Angeles or New York. It's a happening city. It's a center of commerce. It's a cultural center. It's an important city. And Paul says to these Gentiles who are tempted to be caught up in wine, women, and song, you know, whatever, all the things the world has to offer, he tells them none of these things that you're experiencing, none of the temptations you're thinking about, none of them are new. And guess what? God's written a few things that you need to understand, and they happened 1,400 years ago, and you're responsible for them. You're responsible for the lessons. You're accountable for what God has spoken already. That was true 2,000 years ago, and it's true for you and I today. I stand in amazement at Christians who have known the Lord 5 years, 10 years, 15 years, 30 years, who will still come to you and say, how do I do so-and-so? How do I raise my kids right? How do I avoid sin? What do I do with my finances? Uh, How should I view my career? You know, I, I start thinking... You know, if you're a new Christian, it's okay to ask those questions. That's, that's great. And then you can go to a source and find out what God says about it. But you know, the longer you hang around and you say, I still don't know what God says about A, B, C, D, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. We, as I understand it, you and I are responsible for what's between the covers of this book. Of this book. You know, on one hand, you've got all these great incentives to read the Bible. This is going to sound a little heavy, and I don't apologize for that. You know, you've got John 8. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you're my disciple indeed. You're really my follower when you stay in my word. And then he says, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So I can say to you or to myself, I can say, do you want freedom? Read the scriptures. That's a great motivation. Do you want freedom? Read the scriptures. Jesus says in John 15, if you love me, you'll obey me. And I think, well, I'm a Christian. I want to love the Lord. That's a great motivation. I should obey him. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, Jesus says, 
If you hear my words and do them, hear my words and do them, then you're like a wise man. You're building a house, your life, on a rock. And when the troubles of life come, you know what? You're going to stand. You'll survive. You'll thrive in difficult times because you heard my word and you obeyed them. You know what? That's a great motivation. Do I want to live life successfully? I need to be in the scriptures. Do I want to be free in my life? I've got to read the scriptures. Do I want to know how to live life well, to counsel others, etc., etc., etc.? God's provided that for me right here. But you know what? Also, when I stand before the Lord and give an account for my life, and when you stand before Christ who died for your sins and give an account for the life he purchased for you, when those elements of our life burn up, the ignorant areas where we didn't obey him, we're not going to say, well, we didn't know. It's, it won't fly. It's right here. It's here. This is the book, you know, Christians in other land, they tear pages out and they memorize them because they value God's word. Men and women have died just because they've reproduced this book. Because in the great conflict between heaven and earth, God says, I put my truth right here. And Satan's opposed to that. And how many of us go day by day and this book collects dust on our nightstand? Or it's under a stack from the library or it's someplace else where we were full of good intentions, but it sits there unused. We, we are, as I understand it, we are accountable. We are responsible for what God has said in the pages of the Bible. Ignorance is not an excuse for us. We've got it right here. We've got it right here. And if we're not reading our Bible every day and asking God, God, help us, give us the wisdom to honor you and live life well and be successful and enjoy freedom, etc., it comes through no other way. It comes through no other way. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God, and that's how you and I get changed. You know, when you hear the gospel, the Spirit of God takes the Word of God, and we're saved. And then through our life, this process of conforming us to the image of Christ, how does it happen? The Spirit of God takes the Word of God and applies it to our lives. It's the truth, Jesus says, that sets us free. It's all here. It's here, and with all the other good reasons there are to pick up your Bible and read it every day. You know, the rule was uh, that we've told kids in Sunday school, only read your Bible, only have your quiet times on the days you eat. If you eat... That's a good day to read your Bible. If you feed your body that perishes, why don't you feed your spirit that doesn't, that lives forever? We'll give account because we're responsible for what's in this book as Christians. We're responsible. Paul says to the Gentiles 1,400 years after the fact, God's written these things for your instruction. And God, through Daniel, tells Belshazzar, you're responsible for what I told your dad. You knew better, and you didn't respond. You saw your father's sin of pride, and you saw me judge him, and you saw him repent and turn to me, and yet you've followed the same sin. And Belshazzar, that's it. You're cut off in judgment. You knew better. You knew better. You and I, if we want to live a life like Belshazzar, it's easy. All we have to do is do what he did, which is expressed in Ecclesiastes 11.9. Solomon, a pretty wise king himself, says, Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, or young lady, 
Let your heart be pleasant during the days of your youth. Follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Eat, drink, and be merry. Have a good time. Party all you want. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. So on one hand, we can be like Belshazzar. We can ignore what God has said. We can follow the impulses of our heart. Do whatever we want. And in the end, we're going to be judged. We're going to face a judgment. And as Christians, we're not going to hell, and that's not the issue, but we will be judged for our works on the earth. Uh, both First and Second Corinthians make that clear. And God wants to reward us for faithfulness. You know, Jesus, it says that he descended and became a man, humbled himself, and then what's God the Father do? He turns around and says he exalts him above all. He who humbled himself the greatest is exalted the greatest. God wants to exalt his children. He wants to reward his children. He wants to bless his children in eternity. But we will give an account. And that reward and that time in eternity is to some degree based on what we're doing now. And this is part of what we're held accountable for. On the other hand, if we want to live like a Daniel, humble ourselves under God's word, under his hand, under his control, and obey the instructions, the commands, the teachings, the lessons, the principles he's laid out in his word. It's easy. No problem. The question I have for you and me related to this is, are you reading your Bible? I almost hate to put it this way. I wish it sounded, I wish there was some better way of saying this. The, the Bible almost, it can sound boring, but if you're not in God's word, if you're not listening to him, there's no expectation that you can live life successfully here. It's not, it doesn't happen. And we are not morally neutral agents in this world. You and I come programmed to sin. You and I come programmed to pride and to lust and to envy and every other sin area you can think of. That is our default position. And God recreates us. It says we're born again of an imperishable seed. It's his own life. He puts in us. But the truth is, if we're not feeding that new life, we default to our old. We default to our old. So if our mind's not being renewed by the truth of the scripture, we are being formed, we are being conformed to the God of this world, the world, the flesh, and the devil, because that's our natural propensity. That's all there is left. For a Christian, it's kind of, uh, if not a struggle, it has to be a conscious effort to say no to the past, no to what we were, no to the God of this world, so that we can become who God has recreated us recreated us in Christ to be. If the transformation process that Romans 12 isn't going on, then we're stuck where we were. We're still in the clay and the mud experientially in our life. That's where we're at. So it has to be proactive. If we're not in the book, the transformation isn't taking place. If we're not in the scriptures, the freedom isn't coming. The Christ-likeness isn't coming. We default to what we were. So it has to be an active process on your part and on mine. And you know, I would just finish this part by saying, you and I neglect God's word to our peril. In this life and in eternity, we neglect his word, we neglect his warnings, his instructions, his principles at our peril. As I thought about this, I know this sounds heavy. And as I said, I have no apology for that. I wouldn't want anyone to go though 
Paul says that there's a, there's a kind of sadness or we could say a kind of guilt or whatever that just produces more sin. And that's not what we're after. But God wants us to hear the truth. And then if we need to repent, repent so that we actually get to the life side of life. Don't feel guilty and go home and say, out of guilt, I'm going to read my Bible. Because that won't carry you very far. But you can say, Lord, I'm not being faithful. I'm not in your word. I'm not honoring you. I'm not hearing your word and I'm not obeying it. Help me to honor you by doing this thing right. And God will honor that. He will honor that. I've realized late, I guess, in life, I feel like part of my, the major call of what I see God wanting me to do in my ministry is not to build grand edifices. It's just to help Christians put their life on a foundation. I feel like if I do no more than that in any area of life towards anyone else, I think that between the Lord and me, I will be successful. That's what he's calling me to do. Most of us as Christians, we don't live on the rock. We live in the muck because we don't follow the scriptures. We don't listen to his word and do it. And if as an individual or if as a church, we can move from the miry clay and the sand to a rock foundation, you can build on that. God will build on that, but he won't build on the clay and the sand. And so for you and I, let's get on the rock. And you do that by hearing God's word and doing it. Finally, verse 24, we finally get to the message after the history lesson. Verse 24, the hand, Daniel's saying, the hand was sent from him, the Most High God, and this inscription was written out. This is the inscription that was written out, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Upharsin, this is the interpretation of the message, Mene, God has numbered your kingdom. Mene means numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. It's mentioned twice. The thought is probably there's no iffiness to this. God has numbered. He's done it twice. In other words, he's, he's checked the figures and he went back over them. And there's no doubt about it. You've been numbered. Teke, you've been weighed on the scales and found deficient, lacking, wanting, and Perez, is, uh, Perez, your kingdom is divided uh, over to the Medes and the Persians is the singular uh, form of Upharsin. It also sounds like Persian. So it's probably a pun also or a play on words. But uh, Perez, you remember in the Old Testament, divided, cut in half. Your kingdom has been cut from you. And it's given to the Medes and the Persians. Belshazzar gave orders. Having heard this, he was true to his word. He clothed Daniel with purple, put a necklace of gold around his neck, issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Wow. But, verse 30, that same night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. You remember as this was going on, the Euphrates River had been diverted. And the Medo-Persian soldiers had come through the riverbed and they were taken over the city, probably as Daniel spoke. It's interesting. We, we mentioned this of Daniel in chapter 1, but Daniel has now outlived. Daniel, the guy who might have perished earlier, remember even from chapter 1. Daniel, who could have lost his life, his life years earlier. Daniel's an old man at this point. He has outlived Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest Gentile king of all time. He's outlived the Babylonian Empire, the greatest Gentile kingdom of all time, the head of gold in the earlier dreams. 
And it's probably a reminder, which we'll read later in the prophecies, that God's showing us his people, the Jews, were going to outlive, outlast, if you will, the Gentile powers. And at the end, when the play's over and the story's written, his people, the chosen people, would still be standing when the powers of this world, Satan's kingdom, so to speak, had come and gone. John Walvert, in his commentary on Daniel, says, the downfall of Babylon is in type the downfall of the unbelieving world. In many respects, modern civilization is much like ancient Babylon, resplendent with its monuments of architectural triumph. As secure as human hands and ingenuity could make it, and yet defenseless against the judgment of God at the proper hour, not making any uh, judgment on the uh, terrorism of last uh, year, but here was our uh, pillars, if you will, of our economic power were dissolved in a day, if you think about that. Uh, that we, we look at something at our financial and our prowess as a world power, and yet we saw last summer, in a moment of time, all that can change as it did for Belshazzar here. He continues, Contemporary civilization is similar to ancient Babylon in that it has much to foster human pride, but little to provide human security. You know, we can boast as Christians in America of all kinds of things that the world has to offer, but in the end, none of them can actually provide real security or real peace or real joy. He says, much as Babylon fell on that 16th day of Tishri in 539 B.C., so the world will be overtaken by disaster when the day of the Lord comes, 1 Thessalonians 5. The disaster of the world, however, does not overtake the child of God. You know, the waves of life, Matthew 7, they hit us, but they don't overtake us because our life is founded on a rock. Daniel survives the purge and emerges triumphant as one of the presidents of the new kingdom in chapter 6. So in the end, God's kingdom will replace all the kingdoms of this world, and God's people will inherit this eternal kingdom. That's where you and I want to be. Clearly, though, the lessons of at least the second half of Daniel 5 is, humble ourselves and God won't have to. Don't give in to the pride sin that characterized Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar. And the other is, Read God's word and obey it. It not only provides success and freedom and joy and the basis for a real life in this world, but we are accountable for it. We will give account to God for the lessons he has written for others who've gone before us. It's heavy duty. Let's pray. Lord, I know that you are good, that everything you do is good, Lord that loving kindness, merciful love characterizes you. Father, that every good and perfect gift that we ever experience in this life comes straight from you, that in you there's no shadow, there's no hint even of anything deficient, that, Lord, you've proven, you've declared, you've displayed your love for lowly sinners like us by taking your son, your only son, separating yourself from him, making him sin on our behalf so that you could redeem us and bring us back. Better than creatures, Lord, but as your sons and your daughters and in the church as the bride of Christ. Lord, we know that your intent, that your desire towards us is only good. 
because of that, Lord, I ask you this morning that you help each of us to humble ourselves under your mighty hand so that you can exalt and bless as you desire. God, for each one of us, help us to be wise. Help us to hear your word and do it. Help us to be proactive, Lord, to honor you, to live in the proper fear and love of you by reading your word daily, by honoring you, by taking heed to your word, and then doing it. Lord, we know that none of this happens in our own power, even by our own goodwill. We ask that your spirit would be wrestling when necessary, leading with your eye, guiding us into all the truth, conforming us to the image of Christ. We know that's your will, Lord. We ask you to accomplish that in each one of us and in your church, Lord, both here and around the world. Lord, you are our sole desire, our only hope rests in you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.